Morning. This morning's Bible reading is from Numbers chapter 22. So Numbers chapter 22 starting from verse 21 and going through to verse 35 and it's going to be very interesting, Brendan. So Balaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. But God was very angry when he went and the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. Balaam was riding on his donkey and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with the drawn sword in his hand, she turned off the road into a field. Balaam beat her to get her back on the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between two vineyards with walls on both sides. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pressed close to the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against it. So he beat her again. Then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn, either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam, and he was angry and beat her with his staff. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? Balaam answered the donkey, You have made a fool of me. If I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. The donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your own donkey, which you have always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? No, he said. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed low and fell face down. The angel of the Lord asked him, Why have you beaten your donkey these three times? I have come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If she had not turned away, I would certainly have killed you by now, but I would have spared her. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. I did not realise you were standing in the road to oppose me. Now if you are displeased, I will go back. The angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men but speak only what I tell you. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak. Good morning, everyone. And a happy Australia Day to you. We're in numbers today. That's fun. As soon as Coral said numbers, I felt everyone go, oh. Um, We're taking a look at no one's favorite book in the Bible, Numbers. Um, But as our reading revealed, as Carl showed us, uh, it's the most well-traveled part of the book of Numbers, the most popular part of the least interesting book as far as people think. Um, It is the story of of Balaam and and, uh, Balaam and Balak. I'm gonna go back and forth between where I emphasize the name, so just just ignore that. Um, It's the story of of, uh, Balaam, this prophet. And this is the, the Sunday school uh, version of this. Well, the Sunday school attenders will know that this uh, across the world is the one with the donkey. Um, the donkey is only really half of this story. Uh, Balaam's interaction with King Balak are similarly revealing like this donkey-related story. But the message is plain for us. It's about what happens when human pride collides with the will of God. And so recently we've been through Genesis and Exodus, so let's recap the journey of God's people as it leads up to this story. Where are God's people when we reach this story? Uh, Because this story itself 
only really contains uh, the God's people from a distance. You can see this picture here is a, an old drawing. I don't think it's a woodcut. I think it's too fine for that. Um, on the hill there, you've got uh, Balak, the, the uh, king of Moab, pointing down at this huge crowd of Israelites coming into his land, going, ah, what? what am I going to do about this? Because there's an awful lot of them coming into his land, and he's trying to get Balaam there, uh, the prophet, to curse them in a way that he can defeat them. Um, and we'll get into that story shortly. So back in Genesis, God promises Abraham, we remember this, that his children will become a mighty nation, that they will inherit the promised land, and that if they trust in him, God will curse those who curse them and bless those who bless them. He will be their God, they will be his people. And by the end of Genesis, the Hebrews are 12 families, the sons of Israel and their children. They leave the land of Canaan, the promised land. They go down into Egypt uh, into, uh, at God's command, and they thrive there because there was a, a famine in their own land. They're brought down to Egypt. They do great. That's got the story of Joseph in it there. Uh, their families grow huge, grow in these huge tribes over several generations. They grow so fast and so well, so consistently, that the later rulers of Egypt, who have no relationship with these guys who are in their land, who don't remember that their, their uh, great-grandfather uh, had a covenant with these guys, they worry that they are, they are multiplying so fast that they will just overthrow the Egyptians and take over the joint. And so they need to be contained, and so the Israelites are enslaved to try and control them there. Uh, God is blessing the Israelites even under this condition, though, and they continue to gain. Uh, Pharaoh ends up sending out his goons to try and uh, execute the Israelite children. This is part of the story of Moses. The Hebrew midwives run this uh, campaign of interference to save these children, and they remain blessed even through this terrible condition. Uh, and so they grow even more to the point where the treatment of the Hebrews to keep them weak and suppressed becomes harsher and harsher still. And finally, God raises up Moses to lead his people out of Egypt, the, the uh, famous core part of the Exodus book. That's the Exodus of the Exodus story is exiting Egypt. And God blasts Egypt with these plagues and devastating miracles. And the Israelites go free into the wilderness just as Moses had asked to worship their God in the wilderness. Then they encounter a problem. These guys have been slaves for generations, not religious, disciplined people. They don't know much about how to worship God. And what they think they know is actually badly wrong. So Moses goes up to speak to God of the mountain. He comes back down, and they are already offending God. Story of the golden calf. They're worshiping this idol. They don't know how to be God's people. They're not ready to be God's nation, uh, to whom the whole world looks when they seek the hope and wisdom of heaven in a fallen and dark world. And so the rest of Exodus is Moses giving the law, uh, establishing the tabernacle, the, the tent, um, the presence of God among his people, to treat this with respect and reverence, don't make idols of God. We're um, going to have a place that represents God among us instead of that. And then comes the book of Leviticus. Now, Leviticus uh, creates the priesthood. Uh, the priesthood who will lead these wild, recently freed slaves into a condition where they can stand somewhat respectably before God. Leviticus describes the sacrifices and the festivals and the priests. It's the whole starter package on how to grasp what is necessary for these people, these Israelites, to represent the God of Abraham to their world. And for the priests of those people to represent God to them. And the momentum of Exodus is like slavery and then plagues and then freedom and escape and a celebration and then sin and then a hard stop. Let's establish what it means for you to be the people of God and to be led out of Egypt by that God. And then at the end of Leviticus, once this, this has been integrated, uh, we get to Numbers. 
and they start off on their journey again to the promised land. Should be a short trip, it's not that far away, but they arrive at the border of the promised land, uh, they get scared, they doubt God's capacity to help them conquer this place, this walled city, um, and they get scared and they are falling under God's wrath as a result of that. Um, they doubt God and they, they turn away, they long to go back to Egypt, uh, and so God's punishment is that the, the children of these Israelites will inherit the land, but this generation of idol-worshipping, God-doubting, uh, slavery-craving ingrates will in fact die there in the wilderness where they will remain encamped for 40 years. And that's how we get the 40 years in the wilderness. And that's about when we get to this story of Balaam and Balak. Now Balaam is a prophet. He's not a false prophet. He speaks to God and seems to expect that. But he's a wicked prophet, and that comes out in another story. In this, though, he's just kind of a, a goof. Um, he does ultimately what God tells him to do there, but he's, a, he's an example to look at uh, and not to be listened to precisely. He's probably an Edomite, uh, probably a descendant of Esau, uh, Israel's brother. Uh, he's definitely from Transjordan. He's from outside of the Promised Land. He's not an Israelite. Uh, but he's well known in the region by all the kings for his ability to bless and curse. Now blessing and cursing isn't something we really think about in our culture, uh, but it was a big deal in the ancient Near Eastern cultures, in all of those tribes, the Moabites, the Amorites, and indeed the Israelites. You might remember in Genesis where Jacob steals his brother's blessing, uh, and his father is so furious he's shaking, but he can't take it back, because that's not how a blessing works. You can't just give it and then take it back. Once the words are pronounced and God witnesses it, then that's kind of fixed in a way. It has a divine, divine authority to it. And one way or another, I would suggest, I think because he's a descendant of Esau, this Balaam guy, um, this Balaam guy, he has kind of a sniff of the blessing of Abraham, maybe, and Balaam has this power to bless and curse, and everyone knows it. And our other main character is King Balak. Now, King Balak is in trouble, a lot of trouble here, quite desperate, in fact. He's the king of the Moabites. Now, who are the Moabites? Remember back in Genesis, we had Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, God saves Lot and his daughters. Uh, but Lot's daughters are angry um, because their fiancés just kind of got uh, nuked from orbit by God um, in the town of Sodom and Gomorrah. And they come up with, let's call a novel solution to have a child each, if you know that story. Um, well, those children are Ammon and Moab. These are the ancestors of the tribe of the Moabites and the Amorites. They're kind of distant cousins of the Israelites in that way. Uh, they are descendants of, of Lot, of Abraham's nephew. So the Moabites are distant relatives of these Israelites, and they, they had embraced the local religion. They'd become corrupt and wicked. The Moabites worshipped a god called Chemosh. Uh, Chemosh is kind of like Baal. He's a, he's a dumb, angry, lightning-throwing cartoon version of God. Uh, he's exactly what happens when a culture begins to worship the depiction of God as opposed to the true God in heaven. It gets simplified and foolish and incorrect. And so Balak is troubled because all the petty kingdoms of the area are troubled by what they've seen just come out of Egypt just now. Egypt being the most powerful nation on the earth at the time, and then this huge horde of freed slaves explode out of it in a massive, fantastic display of godly power. And the text says this, ooh, it's a bit squinty. that's right, I'll read it to you. Um, it says this, then the Israelites traveled to the plains of Moab and camped across the Jordan from Jericho. 
Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, the guys that they had just fought on their way through to this area. Uh, and Moab was terrified because there were so many people. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the Israelites. The Moabites said to the elders of Midian, who were kind of a client uh, people with them, this horde is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. And now often when we read these Old Testament stories, we don't give much depth to these sort of secondary king and chieftain characters who seem to kind of show up just in time to go, oh, I'll stop you, and then they sort of get chopped apart by the Israelites and off they go. Uh, and I want us to appreciate the situation he's in. Balak has been getting reports from his scouts about what's going on, and it's very strange. There's a group of people traveling in the wilderness near to where his people have settled. Now, where his people have settled, the Moabites, the Moabite land. That's a little worrying because they just obliterated the tribe of the Amorites. The Amorites were the guys next door to him who used to be trouble for the Moabites, and the Moabites had trouble dealing with them. And those guys have just been, like, annihilated. They are completely gone. Um, that's very worrying. And now these Israelites are parked nearby, just idling in their thousands and thousands and thousands of tents. And normally, large groups don't just sort of wander around in the wilderness for no reason, certainly not for peaceful reasons. And if a large group, uh, if it's a large group, it needs to be settled so that it can exploit and adapt the land to support that many people, making farms, improving the area for living. But this group is traveling, they're moving through, they're going somewhere. And historically, there have been tribes, and there even are now today, like there are Bedouin tribes who live in tents and they travel around in the wilderness in, uh, in the Middle East area. Uh, and they survive off their huge herds and their flocks. They drive with them for the most part. Some of these tribes have gotten pretty big. Uh, some are up to 20,000. Uh, today, with some modern techniques making life a little easier for them, some tribes get up to 100,000 people. But parked a short march from Balak's walls is an enormous tent city occupied by, at a conservative guess, two million people. Uh, probably closer to five. The Book of Numbers says there's 600,000 fighting men, and then you kind of got their wives and plus some kids, which we're not told exactly the number of. Let's shoot low and say two million people. That's two million people just outside his doors, just hanging out. Uh, for scale, the Gabba sits 40,000 or 42,000 seats. There's just 50 Gabba's worth of people they're waiting just outside. Um, and this is an insane amount of people to be in one place. It's impossible for this many people to live in the tent city together. Not for long. Now let's pretend these wives and children are really low maintenance um, and just talk about the fact there are 600,000 fighting men nearby. In the ancient world, you could not make an army of that size because an army needs to eat, uh, and if an army is going to eat, they need to be constantly conquering and taking over places with their food. You couldn't manage it with an army uh, of that size at that time. Otherwise, they run out of food real quick. Everyone gets very cranky and starving. They all scatter, they break up. The army falls apart. Uh, and indeed, Balak is worried they're going to come in. They're just going to strip the land of all the food that's possibly there, of all the resources, and leave it. Like he says, like an ox licks up the ground. They're just going like, to tear this place apart. Um, on the other hand, maybe if he can avoid confrontation with these sort of hairy desert lunatics uh, who have come out in their millions for a couple of weeks, maybe they'll eat all their own cattle and sheep and they'll just strip the area like locusts and then they'll starve and scatter and leave them alone. Oh no, these hairy desert lunatics, uh, in fact, food falls from the sky into their camp every night. They will never go hungry. They could be here forever 
as long as they want, surviving on food from the sky because God has provided them with uh, manna from heaven. It's impossible for them to go hungry because they get food from the sky. You might begin to feel like how unfair this must seem to Balak. Um, a sense of how dreadful it is for this little tribal king to have this huge mob outside of his door. A mob, by the way, that looks like that. You can see that. That's the way that the Israelites encamped. They had their tent of meeting. They had their stuff in the middle there. Uh, they had the 12 tribes arrayed around them kind of in three blocks, um, three blocks on each uh, cardinal direction. Uh, I'm not sure how you describe that shape. Um, there's kind of a larger tribe at the bottom. It's like a, like a plus sign with a longer piece at the bottom. Weirdly familiar. Um, I know you can think about that. Um, coincidental, perhaps, that they would be moving in this pattern. But anyway, it's worse than just seeing millions of people hang up outside. Uh, because he might ask his scout, what did you say was in the middle of this camp of two million people? Oh, it's a beautifully embroidered tent and a shrine full of silver and gold devoted to their god. And where did the hairy lunatics get this silver and gold for their god? Oh, they got it from Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world, which just exploded. And the Israelites ran out with their lunch money. That's very concerning. Who is this god they follow? Is it someone that mighty Chemosh might be able to help us with? Oh, it's the god of Abraham, you say. Now, if this was a movie, Balak would have like a brief flash of the story that he was told by his, uh, by his grandfather where their ancestor Lot is fleeing Sodom while the God of Abraham just annihilates these corrupt cities with huge fireballs. Oh, that guy. Are we sure it's that God? Maybe you'd see an image of Egypt being annihilated by these flaming balls of ice falling out of the sky. Oh, yes, it's that guy. Um, so that's the situation that Balak is in. A horde of two million people sponsored by the most powerful and terrifying God he can imagine who just humiliated the most powerful nation on the earth and their gods in a display of power the likes of which Balak has only heard of in ancient stories. It's just outside. Is there any chance they'll just go away? Well, they, were, they looked like they were just going to carry on through Jericho and head on that way, but they turned around and came back here, so who knows? Um, the right thing to do would be to attempt to seek the favor of this God. And in a roundabout way, that's what he does. But it is absolutely not the right way. King Balak is, uh, has heard of Balaam, this prophet who has the ear of the gods, possibly even the God of Abraham, he must think. He sends a message to Balaam and says, I have a job for you. I need you to put a divine curse on this huge mob of Israelites. Can you do it? Uh, Balaam, uh, Balaam goes to sleep. He's visited by God in a dream there. God asks him politely, oh, who are these people in your house who have come to bring you this message? In that accommodating way that God sometimes asks questions that obviously he knows the answer to. Um, Balaam says, oh, these nice men are from Balak, king of Moab. They want me to curse the people of Israel. To which God says, you don't want to do that. Um, do not do that. Balaam says, who is not an idiot, by the way, Balaam says, great, I'm glad we talked. Um, and then he wakes up and he tells the, uh, the officials, nope, uh, I am not going to curse these people. There's a little back and forth between Balak's men and Balaam. Uh, and then Balaam sends the, uh, Balak sends these even more distinguished men, these more, these more official and honorable guys to come and say, look, we'll do anything you want. We'll give you any amount of money. Um, Balaam is still nervous. He says, there is no price, there is no gold or silver worth getting on this guy's bad side for. But eventually, God tells Balaam, you know what, you can go with them, but only do what I tell you. 
And so Balaam gets on his donkey and heads on his way. And then we get the story that we've read in the passage there. Now we get to the passage that, we, uh, that uh, Coral read for us. The most famous part of the, the Balaam story, Balaam and his donkey. Balaam cannot see the angel of the Lord that is blocking the road, but the donkey can. Why? Well, possibly no other reason because God is teaching a lesson to Balaam and the reader in the text here. But it seems more than that, he's blinded by pride. He kind of wants to be important. He wants to impress these officials with him. The reason he gets angry later, he said, you humiliated me. You made me look stupid out there. So it seems there's a blindness in his heart that's preventing him from understanding that God is working here. And the donkey veers off the road to avoid this angel of the Lord that is standing in the way. First, it veers off into a field, kind of the softest, the softest warning you could get. The donkey veers off into a safe place, into this open field. No harm done, but now Balaam looks stupid in front of these, these esteemed officials who are riding with him. So he beats the donkey to get it back on the road. He forces it to go back in the direction that God had turned it away from. So this is not a mysterious, deep metaphor. Uh, we get this. Balaam is blinded to God's will. He's trying to force things to go his way. We can predict the results will not be good. Next, they're passing through a vineyard. There's a wall on either side. Uh, the angel of the Lord blocks the donkey again, and the poor donkey tries to get around it, kind of grinds Balaam's leg up against the wall. It says it crushes his foot, hurts him. Uh, Balaam flogs the donkey again furiously uh, in punishment for this. And finally, they come to a narrow pass. The donkey can't go left or right. There's no wiggle room at all, and it just collapses under him. It lays down on the ground, and Balaam takes out his staff and starts beating it again, uh, truly furious at this poor donkey. He's ignorant of the fact the donkey has, in fact, saved him three times from colliding with God's angel, uh, which the angel would have won. And so God does what only God can do. He performs a unique and hilarious miracle. Um, and I want to be clear about this because it's a funny story. I don't want to detract from it. It doesn't say that the angel spoke through the donkey exactly there. It doesn't say that God used the donkey like a sock puppet to speak to Balaam. It says that the Lord opened the donkey's mouth. Let's say God gave this donkey apparently the ability to speak. And not just the ability to speak, but the ability to ask sarcastic questions. Because the donkey says, what have I done to you to make me beat, no, to make you beat me these three times? Now the sane response to the situation would be, holy smokes, my donkey is talking. Something supernatural is obviously happening here. I need to lie down. Um, but Balaam is furious. He's in that furious state where he's just carrying along with his dumb idea despite the fact that it's plain to him he shouldn't. Um, as is the moral story, he is not seeing what is directly in front of his face. So instead of reacting to the fact that a donkey is speaking to him, he reacts to the fact that a donkey is giving him lip. He says, you're a fool of me. <laughs> if I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. And the donkey, to its credit, does not back down from this thread. With dialogue that mounts to, excuse me? <laughs> Am I not your own donkey? which you have always written to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing these things to you? To which Balaam is forced to say, no. <laughs> then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with its sword drawn. So he bowed low and fell face down. The angel of the Lord chastises Balaam for his abuse of the animal. He says, that donkey saved you three times from walking right into the way that would have killed you. And I would have let the donkey live. Balaam repents, he tells, uh, and the Lord tells him, you know what, actually carry on up this way and meet with Balak, but only say the things 
that I say to you. Listen to me, do what I say. Now, in one sense, this is kind of a little bit cruel to Balaam, or it might feel that way on the first reading. The angel was invisible to him. He couldn't see it. God's using him to make a lesson happen. That might not seem completely fair. But upon a deeper reflection, this guy's a prophet. And like the donkey has said, he should have known that his donkey wasn't treating him randomly. Balaam was being spared from something worse. First by a harmless diversion into a field, uh, next by injury and pain in the third time. He was right up against the razor's edge, and if God uh, hadn't opened his mouth, that hadn't opened the donkey's mouth, he would have gone right ahead, straight through, and perished. He couldn't see the whole picture, but he knew enough to make the right decision, and he should have made the right decision. He could have said on that first or second or third occasion when the donkey stopped, all right, something's going on here. My donkey does not do this. God is clearly opposing my journey through this route. Um, my effort to impose my will on this situation is working to harm me. I'm going to stop. I'm going home. The story would have played out differently. But he was embarrassed before these esteemed royal messengers. He valued the esteem of these men. And it was that simple, prideful veil that blinded him to the fact that he was fighting God for control. And God will always win that fight. And this is the lesson that Balaam at least temporarily learns. By the end of the chapter, he is a humbled man trying to do the will of God in a frightening situation. And Balak takes on the role that, uh, that he had been taking in this a moment ago. Now Balak becomes the ignorant man trying to brute force his way through God's designs. And the last scene in chapter 22 is also hilarious. Um, they get to the top of the mountain. Balak is there. He's been waiting. There's been all these delays with the donkey. He's annoyed. And they speak just like two irritated people today would speak, except in a context three and a half thousand years ago. Balak says... Did I forget to say this was an urgent summons? Why didn't you come urgently? Did you forget that I am paying you? And Balaam fires back, well, I'm here now, <laughs> but I can't just say whatever I want. I can only say what God tells me to say. Balaam is just sort of sore from his brush with death, so he's kind of sassy. Um, Balak immediately reveals himself to be, to no one shock, a man accustomed to power, uh, and getting what he wants. He thinks that he can force the outcome he wants in spite of God's plans. And he, like Balaam, is about to be humiliated for his presumption. And the rest of this story of, unfolds over chapters 23 and 24. I recommend reading it in detail in your own time. It's very fun. I'm forced to skim it here because we don't want to be here quite all day. Um, but Balaam agrees to try to curse Israel with that proviso, with that disclaimer. I am only going to say what God tells me to say. And he tells Balak to, to build seven altars and sacrifice seven rams and seven bulls, uh, and then we'll see what shakes out. And so they make this sacrifice. Balaam gets a vision, and he pronounces it uh, for Balak, his employer. It's written in this sort of poetic, spontaneous song style the ancient prophets use, something like spontaneous beat poetry, maybe. But the words from verse 7 to 11 are to this effect, are these words. Then Balaam spoke his message. Balak brought me from Aram, the king of Moab, from the eastern mountains. Come, he said, curse Jacob for me. Come, denounce Israel. How can I curse those whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce those whom the Lord has not denounced? From the rocky peaks I see them. 
From the heights I view them, I see a people who live apart and do not consider themselves one of the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or the number of fourth of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous and may my final end be like theirs. Doesn't sound like much of a curse. Indeed, it's not, and Balak is unimpressed. He rightly identifies that Balaam has not, in fact, cursed Israel. He has blessed them even more. And he chews out Balaam for this. He says, I told you. Uh, Balaam tells him that I told you. I'm only going to say what God tells me to say, and Balak ignores this. He decides maybe the location is the problem. And so this happens two more times. They go to another place overlooking the assembly of Israel from another angle and another place again after that. Seven more altars each time, seven more rams, seven more bulls each time. Um, each time. And each time another prophecy that isn't a curse but is in fact another blessing and Balak pulls out more and more of his hair each time this happens. Because he desperately needs some kind of divine intervention to make these guys possibly beatable. Because there's no way he's going out there with an army of like 10,000 guys to get chewed up by two million. Um, Balak treats God like something to be caged or bribed or cajoled or sheepdogged into line. And three times he ends up digging a deeper hole for himself. And finally Balak is pulling out the last of his hair and he says, you know what, I asked you to curse and you blessed three times. I'm not going to pay you, just go just to go home. You're doing more damage than good. And Balaam gets ready to go. But because Balaam uh, has words that God has given him, and he said he's going to say the words God has told him, he doesn't just leave. He takes the opportunity as he's going to make four more quick prophecies about Balak and his allies. Each of these prophecies is like two or three lines long. They're really short, um, but they roughly amount to curses. Um, and so there's three or four lines for each of them. And so Balak essentially says, look, get out of here, you're useless. And Balaam says, sure, I'll leave. By the way, you're dead, you're dead, you're dead, you're dead, goodbye. Um, and jumps on his talking donkey and away he goes. Balak isn't dumb enough to think that he could fight Israel and definitely not at this point. He was counting on cursing them to make this victory possible. And his army is tiny compared to this huge swarm of freed slaves. The Moabites used to be oppressed by the Amorites, and then the Israelites just rolled up and stomped the Amorites into a mud hole, and so fighting is not an option. And later on in chapter 25, we see the alternative plan go into action uh, that the, the Moabites use uh, to, to distract and to injure Israel, but that's a story for another time. But Balaam's story and Balak's story here, they're the same story for our sake. The story of people who ignored the warnings of God, sometimes subtle, sometimes blatant in all cases, enough that they should have known better. And in ignoring the warnings of God, they made their situation worse and worse and worse and only avoided death because of the conspicuous grace of God. And the warning of their failures is useful for us too. You cannot force God. You can only harm yourself in trying. Ultimately, God's will is going to be done on his earth. As his children, we can be joyful in our role in filling out that will, but we are not immune to foolishness, even to self-destructive foolishness, this side of heaven. Balaam's issue is that he should have known he was running afoul of God. He's a prophet of God. He was speaking to God the night before. Uh, his animal was acting weirdly, uh, unlike the faithful creature it normally was, 
Now, this should be enough for him to stop and re-examine his direction and decide maybe I'll go a different way up the mountain. Maybe I'll do something else here. Maybe Balak has to come down to me. Maybe something other than taking a stick and banging on the problem until it forced his way. Everyone encounters obstacles and we strive to overcome them. And this isn't to say that you need to take the path of least resistance in your life in all cases, suspecting that any challenge is something God is trying to stop you from doing. But God is a living and active God, and he is living and active in this world. We should be seeking his will in all things, in all our ways. And when we receive conspicuous resistance on our path, we do better to consider if this is not just bad luck, but in fact God deflecting us gently into an open field so he doesn't have to cause us pain. Balak's problem was worse. He knew that God was opposing him. He explicitly knew it. He just thought that because he was a man of power and wealth that God could be bribed or steered or forced into behaving how he wanted him to. He gave him the sacrifices. He got a prophet to commune with him. He should get the result he wants. And Balaam tries to tell him over and over that what he's doing is wrong. He says, I can't just say what I want. I have to say what God says because this God is real and really speaks. I am repeating his words. And Balak cannot get it. He becomes angry that Balaam, uh, Balaam is disobeying him. To this king, gods are things that prophets control. And prophets are things that kings control. And in his defense, that's probably true of every other god he has ever encountered. But our god is alive. He is the living, true mind that the ancient sculptors and carvers tried to represent in clay and bronze and stone and wood and who in time were forgotten by these people in exchange for worshipping the cartoonish representation itself. This is idolatry as seeking for a more kind of manageable, obedient God that you can put away in the drawer when you are done with him. The same thing that humans have been trying to do as far back as the story of the Tower of Babel, uh, where mankind wanted to build a tower with its upper floor in the heavens, like a neat little bird cage for God, right where they wanted him. And the same thing happens today when a church or an individual or a Christian author constructs their own idea of who God should be in their estimation and not the God who revealed himself to us in his word, in coming to the world in the, son of his, uh, in the flesh of his son, Jesus Christ. That's the truth about God. Being one step removed from fallen humanity and speaking through prophets uh, meant at this time that there was a certain degree of validation to the things that he was revealing. It meant that if his prophet said it, you could know that it was his will. Because if a prophet lied, they would die. God would send lions and eat them or something like that. No problem, they die. God's very strict about his people not misrepresenting him in the world and not obscuring his true image. He has three out of the ten commandments about that. Have no other gods, make no idols, do not take my name in vain. Today, we don't have prophets like Balaam or Moses or Elijah. The gift of prophecy exists in another form, one to discuss another time. But the primary way that God reveals himself to us is through his word and through our relationship with him that was made open to us because he came to us to reveal himself in the person of Jesus Christ. He made it possible for us to know him. And that relationship that we get through Jesus to the fullness of God in that forgiven relationship, that and the written word that is given to us are the two lenses that align to enable us to see his will. 
If we read his word and have no relationship with it, we will misconstrue his meaning constantly. And if we claim to have a relationship and we don't read his word, then we are making him a silent partner in our will, not his. And we do this at our peril. Our God is loving and tolerant and saving, and he is also corrective and wise and unstoppable. He's not a caged animal that can be pacified with sacrifices or tithes or prayers. He's out of our control, but he's in our corner. And if we set ourselves against him, nothing we can do can overpower him or negate him. But when we accept him, when we align ourselves with him, what the Bible describes as calling him Lord, then we need fear nothing at all. So let's pray together. God, we are your children, and we thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven and we could be called sons and daughters of God. As our loving Father, you guide us. You see everything. We see only a little, and we rely on your insight to chart our paths. So ward our hearts, God, against the blindness of pride, steer us out of the path of our own destruction and onto the path of your will for our lives. Have mercy on us when we do fail, Lord, when we succumb to our own distractions and faults, and when we try and force our will over yours. Correct us and restore us so we can align to you again. You are our Father and our Lord. May your will be done as in heaven, also on earth and also in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.